Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are ya? You know, one thing I have talked about a lot over the last couple of years has been the semiconductor chip shortage, uh, which is impacting everything from PC manufacturing to the automotive industry to, you know, printer toner cartridges. And I frequently mention that many of the semiconductor fabrication facilities are in Taiwan. But then that got me to thinking, why are they in Taiwan? How did that happen? This was a big gap in my knowledge, so I thought I would look into it and then do an episode on it. And I am a big believer in context. I don't think you can just say, our story begins in 1974, because without an understanding of history and politics and social movements, you can't really grasp how Taiwan got to where it is and the different forces that are, you know, present in Taiwan's economy in general and the semiconductor industry in particular. So we're going to do a super fast, high, high level overview of Taiwan's history, because as it turns out, history, politics, and economics all play a huge part in how and why Taiwan became and remains a critical component of the microchip supply chain. Also, keep in mind, again, super high level, the history of Asia is far too complex for me to cover in depth. I I mean, I would have to dedicate an entire podcast and do you know years of episodes to really even scratch the surface. But let's talk about Taiwan. First of all, Taiwan is an island. It's off the southeastern coast of mainland China. It, it's across from a province called uh, Fujian. Also, my apologies for my pronunciation. Um, it's bad even in English. It's going to be terrible for Taiwanese and Chinese and other uh, uh, foreign names, as my relatives would say. I'm just laying that out here now because it's going to happen. So Taiwan is about 100 miles or 160 kilometers off the coast of mainland China. Uh, The city of Taipei on the northern tip of Taiwan is sort of the political center of the island, even though it's on the northern tip. It's also the economic powerhouse of the island, but the fabrication plants or fabs, or as you will sometimes hear, or sometimes you'll hear them called foundries. They're all the same thing. The foundry, fab, fabrication plant, it just means in this case, a company that makes integrated circuits and semiconductors. All of these are, or for the most part, are located in uh, Sinchu. Again, my apologies for pronunciation. Anyway, that's a city to the southwest of Taipei. It actually faces across from mainland China. Now, for at least 10,000 years, uh, you had indigenous people living on Taiwan who were self-governing. You had different tribes of them. And you know, they had their own languages, they had their own conflicts with one another, etc. Beginning around a thousand years ago, people from what would become the Fuqian province of China came to Taiwan. Um, And like I said, that that province is in the southeast of China. It's essentially across the sea from Taiwan. They would become known as the the Hoklo, 
And that migration would continue into the 17th century. So over the course of like 600 years, they were migrating. Uh, There was a second group from China known as the Hakka, uh, and they began migrating to Taiwan as well. So you had these two different groups of mainland China uh, folks who were migrating to Taiwan. The Hakka were a group of people who frequently faced discrimination on the mainland. I've often seen them compared to other groups of folks who often were displaced in various regions, such as uh, Jewish populations would frequently undergo this, as well as uh, Roma populations. Now, the Hokla peoples were greater in number, and they essentially claimed the coastal regions, the the more favorable regions, and they forced the Hakka peoples uh, closer toward the interior. The aboriginals, the indigenous people, were even pushed further in. Uh, Today, the Hoklo and Hakka are considered the Taiwanese population. So you have the aboriginals, or indigenous people, and then you have the Taiwanese people. Those were the people who migrated from China, you know, between a thousand and, you know, 600 years ago. And they represent, those people, the ones who migrated, they represent more than 80% of Taiwan's population today. Um, in fact, the Hoklo is the largest slice of that pie. I think it's something like between 60 and 65% of the population. Uh, but then, after these migrations, where uh, people from mainland China began to settle in Taiwan, you had the era of colonization. And the Dutch and Spanish both established a presence on Taiwan. Uh, The Dutch actually pushed the Spanish out. The Dutch presence was really an outpost of the East India Company, one of the most powerful entities in the 1600s. Not to be confused with the British East India Company, another very powerful corporation at that time. The, The Dutch one was kind of an early example of a company dominating in supply chains, like in shipbuilding and things like that. So, You know, it kind of seems like history is a way of repeating itself because Taiwan would again become uh, an important link in supply chains later on. In 1662, Ming Dynasty loyalists from China fled to Taiwan as the Ming Dynasty was collapsing and the the Xing Dynasty began uh, to establish itself. The Chinese pushed the Dutch from Taiwan and asserted control over the island. So you have the Taiwanese... Uh, which were the earlier migrants from China. And now you have the Ming Dynasty loyalists establishing themselves in China. In 1683, the Xing forces displaced the Ming forces, but Taiwan remained under Chinese control for 200 years. Now, Asia in the 1800s was a pretty chaotic place, filled with lots of intrigue. Uh, You had major powers all at play in the area, many of which were going through their own internal revolutions. So you had China, obviously, an empire. Uh, You had Russia, which at the time was a monarchy. Japan, which in the 19th century cast off its military government, which was called a shogunate. And in name, at least, it returned to being an empire, though really it would mark an era in which Japanese would rapidly modernize. You also had Korea, which had defended itself against Japanese invasions in the 17th century. By the 1800s, Korea had become very much an isolationist nation, resisting all outside influence and modernization. 
Now, the reason I mention all this is that these different political alignments would shape the region over the following century. Both Japan and China tried to gain influence over Korea. That precipitated into an all-out war between China and Japan, and the Japanese forces, which had more effectively modernized and were better organized than the Chinese forces, won pretty much every single battle that they had with the Chinese. So in 1895, China signs the, uh, a treaty with Japan, and as part of that treaty, China cedes Taiwan to Japan. So the Japanese take control of Taiwan. So again, we went from the indigenous peoples to the early Chinese migrants to the Dutch, to the Ming loyalists, to the Xing loyalists, to Japanese occupation. Uh, a, a really intense amount of change for this one island. While Taiwan was under Japanese control, something else huge was happening in China toward the end of the 19th century. The Xing dynasty was falling apart for lots of reasons, kind of like the Ming dynasty had done centuries earlier. There were a lot of internal conflicts. There were pressures from countries like Russia, Britain, Japan, Germany, France, and the United States. And to get into all the details would require a mini-series of its own. But all this tension, combined with a growing distrust in imperialism within China itself, led to the Chinese Revolution. This was around 1911 and 1912. So China would ultimately shift, at least in name, into a republic. Uh, the Xing Dynasty was overthrown, and the Republic of China, or ROC, was born. Um, and even that story is super complicated. Part of that process also saw a nationalist party called KMT taking formation, um, which was initially suppressed by the first ROC president. Turns out the first president was actually more of a dictator. He even tried to turn China back into a monarchy, which failed, but I digress. So we then get to a truly chaotic era in China's history in which various provinces rebelled against the dictator slash president, and many regions ended up being led by military commanders who became known as warlords. Uh, the KMT party, which again was a very China-centric party, it was very much based in nationalist philosophies, this idea of, you know, China is China, and we need to unify and we need to expunge all the foreign influence that has been uh, trying to, to control China up to this point. But you had another political party come to power, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. These two parties would actually work together in kind of an unsteady alliance for a, a couple of different brief eras. Uh, the Soviet communists were influencing and encouraging the CCP. So the alliance between the ultra-nationalistic KMT and the Soviet-backed CCP was always uneasy. But a common enemy, Japan, kept the two parties united, at least temporarily, and the war with Japan would overlap with World War II. So Japan once again won numerous conflicts against China and sapped much of the Republic of China's resources in the process. Uh, the KMT was plagued with corruption and infighting, and meanwhile, the Communist Party, the CCP, was growing more unified and more confident. Then we get to 1945 and the end of World War II, and Japan surrenders, and as part of that, it cedes Taiwan 
back to China. Now, the last time China controlled Taiwan, it was the Xing Dynasty that was in control. Now it was the Republic of China, which for all practical purposes really meant the KMT, that political party of nationalist China philosophy. But the CCP was rising in power and the KMT was in turmoil. Once again, China entered into a civil war. And the CCP made massive strides against the KMT within China. So in 1949, the Republic of China government fled to Taiwan. And the communist, uh, the Chinese Communist Party takes control of mainland China. So in 1949, we entered into the era of two Chinas. Uh, interestingly, the United States did not recognize mainland China's government as quote-unquote China until 1979. I would say that's largely because of the Cold War and the fear of Soviet influence. Uh, and even though the Republic of China was essentially confined to Taiwan and the surrounding area, the uh, that was what was recognized as quote-unquote China. In 1979, that switched. And now... The United States still only recognizes China. It doesn't recognize Taiwan as being a separate country. Uh, so now it just recognizes the the mainland China government as the actual uh, China <laughs> in U.S. eyes. So, yeah, we have two Chinas. Uh, there's, there's the mainland under the control of the Chinese Communist Party, and there is Taiwan, which is under the control of the Republic of China. And for decades for practical purposes, that was just the KMT. More than a million Chinese fled to Taiwan uh, in 1949 as well. And the Republic of China in Taiwan uh, would issue some uh, emergency decrees in 1949 as in order to try and, and maintain order in Taiwan. Uh, and they were pretty restrictive. Like one of them banned the formation of new political parties. So it kind of secured KMT as the party in power indefinitely. Uh, there were a couple of other smaller, mostly ineffective political parties that were active at the time, but KMT was was absolutely dominant. So they were effectively synonymous with the government of Taiwan. Uh, they also got rid of stuff like term limits. So it was really like just making sure that they had this on lockdown. Uh, the Republic of China would pursue a brutal anti-communist campaign in Taiwan for decades. It was actually known as the White Terror. That extended all the way into the 1990s. Uh, in fact, the, the Republic of China would declare martial law in Taiwan, which would last from 1949 to 1987. So Taiwan's emergence as a player in the semiconductor space actually happened while all this was still a thing. So you might wonder, well, why is he even talking about this? Because these were policies that were actually active when Taiwan began to establish its semiconductor industry. Okay, we've got some more history to get through, and then I swear we're going to talk about semiconductors. But first, let's take a quick break. Okay, we're back. Mainland China, aka the People's Republic of China, ruled by the Communist Party, maintains that Taiwan is still part of China. Uh, the KMT's platform in, in Taiwan 
that that one maintains that Taiwan is separate from mainland China, but it views the unified China idea as critical for trade and political relationships with the mainland. Uh, if I'm being honest, there's some subtleties here that I don't fully understand because it almost seems like the KMT is saying, we also believe in a unified China, just, you know, we're separate from them. And I, it, it almost seems like double think to me, but I'm sure that it's, you know, fully logical and I just don't grasp it because I haven't really been immersed in research enough to be able to understand it. Anyway, the tensions between Taiwan and China are key to understanding Taiwan's place in the semiconductor industry today and how like people are starting to wake up to the potential dangers of this, uh, this tension between China and Taiwan. So since the mid-40s, the Republic of China has maintained control of Taiwan. Uh, the KMT dominated the Republic of China for most of that period. But more recently, that has changed. In 2000, a candidate for the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, defeated the KMT candidate for president of Taiwan. The DPP platform centered largely on the concept of a Taiwanese republic with independent sovereignty. So this is more of a party that says we are our own nation. We should be considered as such. And you can say that the DPP in general favors closer ties with the United States and independence from China, while the KMT has tendencies of maintaining closer relationships with China uh, a lot of the members of KMT are people who migrated from China to Taiwan, so they want to maintain those, those ties, both economic and political. Now, I mentioned that the population of Taiwan is ethnically more than 80% Taiwanese. Again, those are the people who migrated from China hundreds of years ago, uh, most of those being Hoklo or uh, Fuxian Chinese settlers. Uh, about 2% of the population are indigenous peoples whose history on the island stretches back thousands of years, and about 14% of the population are mainland Chinese who relocated to Taiwan uh, or are descended directly from you know a generation that located relocated from uh, China to Taiwan. Since 2000, the power has shifted a couple of times between the KMT and the DPP. And currently, the DPP controls a majority of the government of Taiwan. The island has had a few eras of industrialization. Uh, mostly that got started during the era of Japanese occupation. And so there was some industrialization that was occurring in Taiwan around World War I and World War II. Under the Republic of China in the 1950s and 60s, Taiwan experienced an incredibly rapid industrialization period, mostly in areas like textiles and light manufacturing. But it was happening at a pace that was well beyond what we saw develop in other countries like the, the United Kingdom. One of the practices that led to this, both in Taiwan and on mainland China, was a new policy that encouraged students to study abroad in fields like engineering before returning home to apply what they had learned and build out industry in their home country. Now hold that thought. We're going to shift gears for a second to talk about integrated circuits. Okay, before 1959, 
circuits consisted of electronic components that were connected to each other with physical wires to create a circuit. Uh, The invention of the transistor meant that circuits could be much smaller than they had been. Uh, The transistor was able to replace a component like uh, the vacuum tube. And that's what allowed for the invention of things like the transistor radio, which was a device small enough to carry in your hand. Whereas the radios of old, those were like big tabletop or sometimes consoles, like a piece of furniture all on themselves. But transistors brought in the era of miniaturization. However, circuits were still kind of bulky. You know, you still had to use wires. You couldn't get too small because it became too difficult to connect the individual electronic components to to wires, and you just reached a, a point of diminishing returns. But then Robert Noyce, who was working at Fairchild, and Jack Kilby, who was working at Texas Instruments, each independently came up with a similar idea. What if you were to build out a circuit on a single silicon chip, and you could etch connectors to every component, and you could build directly onto the chip, and all the components would be integrated on that chip. It would be an integrated circuit, or IC. That could reduce the size of circuits even more than the shift from vacuum tubes to transistors did. Noyce would ultimately get the patent for that invention from the patent office. They both filed for a patent. Noyce just, you know, won. He just got it first. Uh, But both of them are credited, at least in most places, as being the inventor of the integrated circuit. Now, it's one thing to design an integrated circuit. It's another thing to produce them at scale. Uh, Production is a tough challenge, and it's made even tougher by the fact that as designs evolve and components shrink in size, you actually have to overhaul your entire manufacturing process in order to meet that design, right? Like, you can't just keep using the same process. It isn't designed to make things smaller. You have to actually reconfigure everything. So for that reason, it really didn't take very long after the invention of the integrated circuit for a lot of companies to foresee a problem. Uh, The cost of creating fabrication facilities was considerable, and the cost of overhauling them meant you couldn't just write off as a one-time thing. You couldn't say, well, we'll invest you know, $15 million to build out a facility and then we're done. No, it'd be, we'll have to invest $15 million in a facility. And then in a year, we will have to spend another 5 million to update the facility. Now this opened up an opportunity. A company could specialize in the manufacture of integrated circuits that had been designed by other companies. So you would have some companies just working in R&D, and they would build out new designs for semiconductor chips. But they wouldn't be ready, they wouldn't be capable of manufacturing those on a scale that would allow them to, you know, use them as products. So then they would partner with a fabrication company. They would become a customer of the fabrication company, and the fabrication company would just focus on building out integrated circuits at scale. That scale thing is important because if you are able to operate at scale, you can bring down the cost of the individual components that you need in order to actually make the thing. As the costs come down, if the price stays the same, then you you, you make profit. Uh, all right, so let's get back to Taiwan. In 1973, 
uh, in Sinchu City, and again, my apologies for all the terrible pronunciations, uh, the Industrial Technology Research Institute, or ITRI, was founded. It's a nonprofit organization. And you might say, by whom? Who was it that founded the ITRI? I am not entirely sure. Uh, my research just gave me that date and the fact that it was founded. I looked in lots of places, and unfortunately, a ton of them have nearly identical wording, which tells me that they're all drawing from the same source. So uh, I don't have more information on that. I'm sure people out there know who are listening to this. They can let me know. Uh, text stuff HSW on Twitter, because I'm curious. Anyway, ITRI is a technology R&D institution that would play a key role in launching the semiconductor industry in Taiwan. And then we get a story that goes like this, that a group of seven people, among them Taiwan's Minister of Economic Affairs, and another one was a Chinese-born executive who worked at Radio Corporation of America, or RCA. I've done multiple episodes about RCA, so you can listen to those to learn about how influential and important that company was. Uh, they met for breakfast at a stall in Taipei, again, along with like five other people. This was in 1974, and they were talking about how Taiwan could be part of the semiconductor manufacturing industry. Now, the story says that the RCA executive urged Taiwanese officials to invest in building out fabrication facilities for integrated circuits, and the officials were eager to bolster Taiwan's economy. This is 1974. That means this is following in the wake of the 1973 oil crisis, uh, which in itself was the result of a massive political disagreement, which is putting it lightly, that happened on a global scale. And even countries that weren't directly connected to the oil crisis got affected by it through, you know, the fact that co countries that were affected, uh, you know, the international commerce meant that this was a ripple effect across the entire world. So Taiwan was hit by that. Now, the case was made that Taiwan could build up fabrication facilities and other companies could rely upon those facilities to build their designed circuits. The integrated circuit was less than 20 years old at this point, and already they were getting complicated enough that small fabrication facilities were beginning to get left behind. And this is really where Moore's Law comes into play. So Moore's Law is really uh, an observation rather than a law. Gordon Moore observed a trend driven by economic demand in which companies were doubling the number of discrete components on integrated circuits every two years or so. Today, we tend to think of this as computers get twice as powerful every two years. So the computers of today are twice as powerful as the computers of two years ago. But the original observation was that economic factors primarily drove companies so that they would put or cram twice as many components on a, on a one-inch uh, wafer of silicon every two years. Uh, they would double. So if you have, you know, in, in year one, if you have a transistor with a thousand components, then by year three, you're building circuits that have 2,000 components. And then by year five, you're talking about 4,000 components and so on. And that gets really big really fast. This was opening up tons of pathways in technology, but it also stood as a huge challenge to manufacture chips at scale. Meanwhile, the companies doing the R&D and chip design weren't necessarily in a position to build out their own fab facilities, so it was an area of opportunity. Taiwan could lay the foundation to be a link 
in the supply chain, the place where companies would have their designs actually manufactured. Those finished chips could then be sent elsewhere, maybe for packaging or even into incorporation in other technologies, you know, from handheld electronics to military systems to weapons to vehicles and everything in between. Now, this was not going to happen overnight. The RCA executive estimated it would take $10 million in investment in four years to just get things moving in the right direction. See, when I say you got to build out fabrication facilities, that sounds pretty straightforward, but you have to understand that chip fabrication requires incredibly specialized equipment as well as knowledge and skill. Taiwan would have to secure all of those in order to make this work. Taiwan at the time had not advanced beyond the assembly stage of production in the semiconductor industry. So in other words, the companies in Taiwan at that point, they were putting together components that had been made by, you know, companies in other countries, and they were just assembling them. Typically, you would then see if, you know, Taiwan was to follow the 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 normal evolutionary path, you would see Taiwanese companies jump into developing transistors next. But the Taiwanese officials decided they needed a faster route. And so they made the decision to acquire the technologies they needed to go straight into integrated circuit fabrication, skipping over the whole transistor manufacturing stage. In 1976, RCA agreed to transfer semiconductor technology to Taiwan. Uh, specifically, it was the 7 micrometer CMOS or complementary metal oxide semiconductor process technology. Uh, you will sometimes hear the word node used in semiconductors, and you'll hear a measurement, right? You'll hear a size. Like 7 micrometers is pretty small. Uh, it's nowhere near as small as the components that are on chips these days. But yeah, 7 micrometers nodes... Uh, if you hear the word node, it's just talking about the process that's being used to create these particular types of semiconductor chips. Uh, engineers from Taiwan traveled to the United States to train at RCA facilities. They stayed there for a full year to learn the ropes of semiconductor manufacturing. It wasn't unusual for Taiwanese students to study overseas. They were continuously uh, encouraged to do so. And they would often take jobs with companies in Silicon Valley they would build up their knowledge and experience, and then they would return to Taiwan to bolster the burgeoning industry back home. Now, to do that, organizers working on behalf of Taiwan established the Electronics Research and Service Organization, or ERSO, in the United States. The ERSO would help secure knowledge and technology necessary to power Taiwan's efforts at home, among many, many other duties. The ERSO was actually critical in this endeavor. Okay, we've got... More to cover, but we need to take another quick break. Okay, we're back. Between 1976 and 1979, the collaborative efforts of organizations like the uh, Electronics Research and Service Organization, you know, ERSO, and ITRI, and many, many others established a demonstration factory where foreign-trained engineers could return to Taiwan and put their knowledge to work and establish manufacturing best practices for semiconductors. It was kind of like training for the big game. It was all about, all right, let's find out what works best so that we can hit the ground running when we're ready to open for business and accept customers. The following years saw more investments into the semiconductor manufacturing 
uh, space in Taiwan. Uh, the size of the discrete components on chips shrunk from 7 micrometers to 3.5 micrometers. Thanks, Moore's Law. Uh, ITRI was able to secure technology from overseas and distribute it to Taiwanese firms, uh, as well as to ITRI's own pilot plant. In 1980, ITRI spun off a group that had been working on integrated chip manufacturing, and that group would become Taiwan's first private integrated circuit fab facility. It was called United Microelectronics Corporation, or UMC, and several folks who were at ITRI, which in itself, again, is a nonprofit organization, several of them would then go on to found companies in Taiwan in the semiconductor space. So it became kind of an incubator. But the really big player in Taiwan would emerge in 1987, thanks to Morris Chang. Uh, now, Chang was born in China, but he earned advanced degrees in engineering at MIT and Stanford, and then worked at Texas Instruments for 25 years, specifically in semiconductor design and manufacturing. In 1985, the Taiwanese government contacted Chang to bring his expertise back to Taiwan. So Chang went to Taiwan and he joined the ITRI. He became the chairman and president of the organization in 1986. And he oversaw the launch of a sophisticated semiconductor wafer fab plant on ITRI's campus. And in 1987, he took the lead on establishing the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC. The company received financial backing from the Taiwanese government and from the Dutch company Philips and from private investors. Chang's leadership established several practices that secured Taiwan's place as a key link in the semiconductor supply chain. For one, he set prices for semiconductor manufacturing ahead of the cost curve. This was a big controversial decision at the time. So his logic was that he would sacrifice short-term profits in order to get a firm hold of market share, and then he could hit a manufacturing scale that would bring costs down. But the price would remain steady. So again, like by, by producing at scale, the individual components he needed would end up coming down. It's like buying in bulk, right? If you buy in bulk, the individual price for each unit comes down, typically. So if you do that, but the product you're selling remains steady at its price, well, you have long-term profits that way. Not everyone thought this was going to work, but boy howdy did it work. The competitive pricing brought TSMC lots of customers early on. This was particularly impressive because the company was actually a couple of nodes behind the industry leaders. Remember, nodes refer to processes to make semiconductor chips. And when I say a couple of nodes behind, typically what we're talking about is the size of the components that you can you can make on a chip. The more components you can make on a chip, the more sophisticated the chip is, the more powerful it can be. Not everything needs that kind of a chip, right? Like if you're talking about a toaster, you probably don't need a super sophisticated chip. So TSMC starts getting customers that are looking for a cost-effective, but not necessarily bleeding-edge, semiconductor fabrication facility. And in the meantime, the company kept reinvesting in itself in order to try and catch up with its competitors, which it did. Like, over time, it started to close that gap so that it was able to 
to build out the facilities and to acquire the technology necessary to produce chips at nodes that were more like the the leading uh, uh, standard. So they were able to both operate as a business and to advance their own technology at the same time. It's pretty impressive. Another practice that Chang oversaw at TSMC was creating an efficient design cycle so that the time to market would be as short as possible. This was for TSMC's customers. In other words, the fabrication facility made it easy for chip designers to go from their idea to production. They created processes that uh, that made that very efficient so that there was not much of a delay from the point where you say, here's what we want, and being able to produce it at scale. So that made TSMC a go-to fabrication partner for tons of fabless chip designers. Fabless just means it's a company that designs chips, but it doesn't manufacture them. Heck, TSMC is the dominant company in that industry today. They have somewhere around 53 to 56% of the global market share in semiconductor fabrication. So it's not really an exaggeration to say that there's a 50-50 chance that any semiconductor chip you come across was produced, was manufactured at TSMC. Not designed there necessarily, but produced there. It's one of just a few companies, uh, another one being Samsung, that has a fab facility that can make chips using the 5 nanometer node process. Uh, Once upon a time, as I said, those sizes that we refer to in processes actually related to the components on chips, like 7 micrometers had a, a direct relationship with the size of components that were on a chip. These days, when we're talking about things like 5 nanometers, we're no longer really talking about the size of anything on that chip anymore. It's now more or less just a designation to say the next generation of you know chip process design. And even that's on borrowed time. TSMC plans to commercialize the 3 nanometer node process this year. So <laughs> it will be replaced possibly by the time this episode comes out. So... TSMC essentially cornered the market on semiconductor fabrication in lots of respects. And as integrated circuits get more complicated, building out a foundry that can make those kinds of circuits gets more expensive. So there's this increasingly high hurdle for anyone else to overcome if they want to get into that business. And as we've seen over the last couple of years, that can be a big problem. Uh, it's essentially the, the issue of putting all your eggs in one basket. Demand for chips has been incredibly high, but lots of factors have impacted TSMC recently and their capability of producing and shipping chips. Uh, one of those is actually political tensions between the United States and China. Uh, both the U.S. and China play a very important role in the semiconductor chain. Taiwan ships a lot of semiconductors to China. China represents an enormous revenue source for Taiwan, uh, especially in the semiconductor industry. So that is a big concern for Taiwan. And the United States has the lion's share of the chip design companies in the world. So they are big customers of those foundries. And the trade war between the United States and China kind of puts Taiwan in the middle and things get pretty hairy. Uh, Like TSMC, for example, stopped making chips for the Chinese telecom company Huawei in the wake of accusations that Huawei was potentially 
using tech to conduct surveillance on other countries through those countries' own telecommunications systems. So, you know, like the United States builds out uh, a cellular network and the cellular network has Huawei components in it, the fear was, oh, the Chinese could be using that to, you know, listen in on conversations and steal information from the United States or to compromise the integrity of the telecommunications system in the U.S. And there's this ongoing concern about that. So TSMC decided to side with the United States on this one. Uh, and there are always tensions that China could potentially try to force Taiwan to reunify with mainland China. In fact, Taiwan has held a few notable war games to simulate a Chinese invasion to train for that eventuality, or per perhaps just to provide a, a type of military theater to show that the island is willing to fight to retain its you know, semi-independence from mainland China. COVID also really hit the supply chain hard, and that's really pulled back the curtain on how dangerous it is to be so dependent upon a single region, really a single company for the majority of semiconductor chips, right? Like, it has really shown that when that, there's something that interferes with that, it has this massive impact around the world. Both the United States and China are pushing to establish uh, foundries in their respective countries. So they're trying to build out fab facilities uh, within the United States or within China. Uh, in fact, TSMC has been, uh, has been tapped with establishing a foundry in the United States. The current estimation is that China, their technology for semiconductor fabrication is about 10 years behind everybody else, technologically speaking. And that due to the speed at which tech evolves, it will be very hard for China to close that gap, at least in the near future. The United States is much further along technologically, but would still have to invest billions of dollars to build out foundries. So there's an economic barrier, not a technological barrier. Now, it really raises questions also about Taiwan's future in this space. I mean, it may well be that in a decade, Taiwan will no longer be the dominant party for semiconductor fabrication. We may see that built out in other parts of the world where we've dispersed that a bit, which in some ways is good, obviously, because it means that, you know, the, the supply chain becomes more, uh, becomes stronger. Uh, obviously, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So if something happens to one link, then everything beyond that is affected. And uh, we've seen that with the semiconductor shortage. So the idea being, if we can have more fabrication facilities that are capable of producing at scale, we can avoid that kind of thing in the future. Uh, but it also potentially means a massive economic impact on Taiwan. Uh, they, they make billions of dollars. TSMC generates billions of dollars of revenue every quarter. I want to say that the most recent quarter, the company reported $6 billion in revenue. That's a lot of money. So uh, it could be a massive blow to Taiwan uh, as well. Uh, meanwhile, obviously, the the political and social changes in Taiwan are further distancing itself from what's going on in mainland China. Anyway, that is kind of the short version <laughs> 40 minutes plus of why Taiwan is so associated with semiconductor manufacturing. It literally is because 
we had reached a point where someone was going to have to make that huge investment in order to meet the demands of chip designers. And the Taiwanese government were willing to put forth that kind of investment to establish themselves as that party. And that's how it happened. Um, but yeah, I hope you enjoyed this, this episode. I highly recommend that you read up on the history of China, the history of Taiwan, the history of Asia, really, for that that whole period I was talking about, because it really explains why things are the way they are today and how these various geopolitical issues can end up being uh, a huge challenge for, for global businesses today. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, please do not hesitate to reach out. The uh, The Twitter handle for our show is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.